Leeds, 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 what is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. So I'll start off with you, Adam. What did you want to be when you grew up? Some people would say that working in the university sector, I'm an eternal student and I never did grow up. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I guess um, I was always interested in sciences. Um, At one point I had to make a call about whether I wanted to uh, go into music or go into the sciences. I always felt music was a bit more of a hobby. Exactly which science I then wanted to pursue was a bit unclear, but I ended up doing a geophysics degree at university and I've been a geophysicist ever since. So definitely uh, achieved the science ambitions there. And Dick? Like it's funny because I was always wanted to go into the arts. So we're like science and arts. It's great. It's <laughs> like, you know, getting on together is fantastic. The yin and the yang. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I was always, I once started out wanting to be a writer, really. When I was a, a teenager, I wrote for loads of fanzines and stuff. And kind of, I, I think they always thought I was, I never really said that I was as young as I was. So I think I thought I was older than I was. And then occasionally I'd meet someone and put one of these things together and they'd be like, oh, blimey. <laughs> you just a young kid. Um, but likewise, I also had a thing. I then got into theatre and music, really. And I also had a thing of, I got to choose between theatre and music. Like I had a real clear moment. This is probably when I was in my sixth form. And I had a real clear moment of going, it's one or the other. I've got to pick one or the other. I can't be successful at both these things. Um, and I picked theatre and that sort of defined where I ended up, I guess. Although I've come round now and I'm involved a bit more in, in some music stuff, although not playing, which is what I thought I'd do at the time. Mm, it wasn't very good. I, like I picked the right one because I, I couldn't really play. So that was, that was probably <laughs> the right thing to do. Yeah, I was going to say, it might have been difficult to be successful at both of those things, but it's very possible to be unsuccessful at both of those things. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I never even considered not being successful, Adam. <laughs> You're listening to Series 3, Episode 1, and to my guests, Adam Booth and Dick Bonham. This is another Zoom interview, so again, there's some glitches that I have tried to minimise as much as possible. This interview was recorded on the 27th of January, 2022. Hello, I'm going to go straight into guest introductions on this one. Dr. Adam Booth works at the University of Leeds, where he is Associate Professor of Applied Geophysics, roughly translated, that's someone who looks under the ground for buried things without having to dig them up. Dr. Booth researches in this field and also trains students in the art of seeing through the soil. One of his main branches of research is in glaciology, understanding how glaciers will evolve with climate warming. But it's not only the science challenge that Dr. Booth is facing, it's also one of public engagement. And this is where Quantum Source was born, a public engagement project that helps build a bridge between university researchers and the general public. Quantum Source is hosted at Farsley's Constitutional Club. Quantum Source blends science with stand-up and gets academics talking to people in the comfort of their own pub. Dick Bonham is co-director of Trouble at Mill Events Limited and runs two venues in Farsley. The Constitutional, which you can find at www.theconstitutional.co.uk, home to Quantum Source, and the Old Wallen. Uh, the Old Wallen is www.oldwallen.co.uk. Dick's background is in theatre, both as a producer with Little Mighty and in various directing jobs over the years. 
Dick is an experienced director and dramaturge. He was dramaturge on The Book of Darkness and Light, Shivers. He directed Up the Stair. His other work includes directing Dan Bai's Fringe First award-winning Going Viral, as well as previous pieces The Price of Everything and How to Occupy an Oil Rig. Other projects include Matthew Bellwood's An Icy Man and Emma Descent's Beyond Dreams of Aberystwyth. Aberystwyth? Aberystwyth. He wrote and directed Sometimes We Play, We Can Be Heroes, National Tour in 2015, wrote Common Chorus Theatre's If I Say Jump, and is currently collaborating with Simon Brewis on The Ghost of Stolen Summer, commissioned by Harrogate Theatre and premiering in 2022. I'm really interested to hear from anyone in Leeds or from Leeds in whatever industry, sector or role you are in. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Well, if you don't want to tell me, but you want to hear from other lawyers about their work, then please help this podcast in whatever way you can. Like, share, follow and subscribe to the show. If you want to offer additional support to help working hours, then please leave a review or rating for this show. If you would like to contribute regularly to the podcast, you can sign up for the Patreon for this show. It's a pound a month because even though I need the cash, it's more important for me that anyone can be a subscriber should they want to be. And that's as low as the amount goes. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash working hours pod right now and sign up to help me in getting 1000 loiners recorded for working hours. There will be bonus material in the future, but not if no one signs up. The more you do, the more I do. Please rate and review working hours and I'll see you next time. What is it that you're doing now? So I'll start with Adam again. So right now I'm um, a university associate professor. I'm associate professor of Applied Geophysics at the University of Leeds in the School of Earth and Environment. And Applied Geophysics, well, geophysics is looking under the ground for things, um, whatever it is that you're interested in, so planetary structure or buried resources or anything like that. And I teach and do research in in that sort of field. Um, A lot of what I do is looking at glaciers and how they respond to climate heating um, what the implications might be for, for sea level rise. And, um, yeah, I also run, um, a, a public engagement event called quantum serves. Okay. So that's a good point for you to jump in there, Dick. So, well, the link is that Adam runs quantum source at my venue. So, um, yep. I, I run a couple of venues in, uh, Farsley over in West Leeds. Uh, and I run it with a couple of friends of mine, uh, Chuck Hussain and, and Howard Bradley. So Chuck's got a music background, so going back to that link as well. So and Howard runs big community events, and obviously I've got the theatre background. But uh, so we've got two venues that we we've got the Constitutional is our first one, which is in an old it's an old Constitutional club, which back in the day uh, was a space for uh, the Tories and the Liberals, which were the parties that were around then. This was pre Labour mm-hmm. um, to get together and have a nice safe space to come and have a a, a nice ding dong and a confab together um which i guess it, you know it, it's it's sort of still is maybe with different political flavors as well yeah yeah exactly exactly um so it's a lovely space and we opened that about 18 months before lockdown and uh since lockdown we've also opened another new venue which is about three minutes away mm. uh and is called the old woolen Mm. Uh, which is in uh, Sunnybank Mills. It's a beautiful old um, mill. It's the oldest mill building in the complex. 
it's, it's a site that's been uh, redeveloped over time and it's got some amazing stuff going on. So we, we opened a venue in lockdown, which may be a crazy thing to do basically, but has been, yeah, successful so far. And we, we put all sorts of things on. So we have theater, obviously, but also music, which is where I'm getting involved in that music thing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, we do a great bingo night, which is, which is quite crazy. <laughs> um, quite legendary in the area. I think we, we have like spoken word stuff all sorts and one of those nights was quantum source Mm. with adam cool okay so i'm going to come back to adam first i want to know about the glaciers i take it you're doing field work where you're actually going out to glaciers so where where have you been where are you going what what sort of things are you doing when you get there um so wherever there are glaciers there is a glacier geophysical investigations to be done so i've worked at uh, both poles we've undertaken field work on on greenland in uh the high Svalbard Arctic, and um, we've also done deployments uh, throughout the Alps uh, and uh, in Antarctica. And a lot of what we're doing, I mean, the beauty and power of geophysical surveying is that you can you can go places where other methods cannot reach. So you can see into the ground, into the subsurface, whether that's soil, rock, ice, snow, whatever. Um, you can see underground and you can see what it's like down there. So the big questions to answer um, for, for glaciology is how are glaciers evolving in, in a warming climate? Mm. And, um, so you can look at the, the internal structure of glaciers. You can get an indication of how they might be speeding up and responding to, um, to warmer temperatures. Um, and another big thing is looking at the, the role of meltwater within those glaciers, because a glacier is not a solid mass of ice. It's full of cracks and crevasses and holes. And so if you're warming up the ice surface, it's eventually going to melt. And some of that meltwater finds its way through that internal plumbing system of the glacier and finds its way to the bottom of the glacier. Now, if you imagine that um, originally you start with glaciers that are sat on dry rock, potentially frozen to the, the rock that welded in place, um, they're not really able to flow anywhere. But as you start adding water into that mix, the water kind of acts as a lubricant. And so all of a sudden it starts to allow the glaciers to, to, to speed up. And so there are some theories which say that the more water you put down there, uh, the, you're going to enhance glacier flow. So glaciers will flow more quickly from the land into the sea, and then you'll get, um, accelerated sea level rise. So, um, we are trying to understand that whole interplay between the ice, the rock underneath it and the water that percolates through through the glacier and uh, as i say we we do that wherever there are glaciers uh the last the last deployment that i did pre-lockdown was in west greenland with some colleagues at uh, scott polar research institute in in cambridge we were due to do some pretty big deployments on um antarctica's thwaites glacier thwaites glacier got called the doomsday glacier by um, a lot of media outlets because its future is it's it's very tied up with um, the overall stability of uh, of the West Antarctic um, ice sheet, mm. um, and then along came a certain global pandemic and put paid to a lot of those field activities. Um, we have just had a field crew come back from Antarctica, but they were on a, a recovery mission with basically a skeleton crew. So, mm. yeah, the the whole kind of polar fieldwork agenda got really badly affected by by COVID and lockdown and uh, everything like that. Mm. So it was quite challenging. Mm. I'm sure we'll come back to 
plenty of points that you've raised there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's go back to Dick and sort of, so yeah, how did you get into, um, basically running the, the venues, um, and how did you get into the theater work and how did the two sort of align? This is my life history now. I'm getting, I'm getting on a bit. So it's, there's, it's how far back you go. Um, originally I, I came to Leeds to study theatre at Le- Leeds University, um, and hung around. So that's, and sort of ended up here. I mean, that's the short version. Yeah. Uh, so, I, but I've done, I mean, I don't think there's one route into theatre. It's a funny old business for getting into mm. something. People have quite different routes. Um, so some of my early stuff was, I worked in theatre and education for quite a long time, mm. um, going into schools and all that kind of thing at nine o'clock on a wet Thursday morning in February, mm. it's fun. And then I started making my own work and, uh, we did some, I, I, I think there was some, probably some turning point pieces where I, that kind of gave me confidence and gave me some more connections. So I, I made a piece for, uh, light night back in. Oh gosh, it's over a decade ago. So when Light Night in Leeds first started, uh, and it was the days where they gave you a bit more money, so, mm. so which was helpful. So we did like three linked pieces on different sites. Uh, yeah. So there was um, St. John's Church. We did like, a, it was almost like a light sculpture and you could come and we did projections and stuff and you could come and alter the projections. Nice. And then we, at, um, it was, that was Holy Trinity. And then St. John's Church, yeah. where St. John's Centre is. Um, we did, uh, which is a disused old church. We did like a, an audio tour. So you listen to the piece going around. Yeah. Uh, and then there was, and then at the, 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 um, electric press on a millennium square, we did, it was like this kind of crazy, like Victorian circus had wandered into town and everyone was there kind of doing little tricks and then disappearing and amusing people out for a drink on a Friday night. So that was great fun. So that was a great, that, that was a kind of, I remember that as a turning point for me of having the confidence to go, I can make my own work and it can be successful. And it kind of, uh, it gave me a, a, I guess, a stepping stone to move on a bit. And then I've directed loads of stuff. I've produced loads of stuff. So I've got into producing, which is, um, essentially I've spent a lot of time tour booking and, uh, raising money for shows to happen mm. and I've ended up touring all over the place basically so i can navigate the country by theaters is what i can do mm. um you know which is uh, if, if, if there's not a theater there i don't know where it is and my yeah. one impression of the town is what the theater is so if that that, if that <laughs> is what i know about the country not much else um and i've had stuff go internationally i've had stuff go off to india and new york and all that sort of stuff so it's sort of it's the sort of thing that once you get into you kind of keep going and kind of grows and grows but then this came around so i was always on a train somewhere like the thing like being able to navigate the country by theaters is you get on the train and you get off and you know the route from the train to the theater and that's that's what i was doing for a long long time lockdown's been very odd in that sense because i've just been like on the same street for yeah. two years which i never am but in fact, this as an area where we now live, the, it was, uh, there were three of us who lived down the road from each other. So, so me, Chuck and Howard and, uh, Howard had started the community festival in the area. So started off with 30 kids in the church hall down the road and ended up with closing the street for the Jubilee. And there was 10,000 people up and down the street. So it was, it'd been a development there and it, and it was some really interesting work going on. We got to know each other cause we were, you know, all pitching in and helping out on that stuff happening. Mm. And then that got us that had closing the road that time got us a relationship with Sunny Bam Mills and it's run by, it's been in the same family for years. 
since it was built. Uh, so the Gaunts uh, and its two cousins who now run it, but it's they're, they're like the the people who have inherited it, as it were. And they're really great. They're really brilliant guys. They've massively supported everything we've done. And they said, we've got this old space at the mill. Do you want to come and have a look? And we we did. And it was a space that was scheduled for demolition, which is why I think they were prepared to take a risk on us going into it and knocking it down. And uh, so we did a pop-up night. And we're, in, we're back in 2014, I think we started that. And we did a pop-up night once a month. And we'd have maybe a theatre show, a comedian, a band. Yeah. We used to used to have a guy do some homebrew for it, which was quite potent. And then, you know, it was very much, we thought, oh, we might pop it on and get 30 people along. And pretty soon we were selling out and doing 200 people yeah. at home. So we knew there was an audience in the area. That's what got us going, really. And from there, the space of the Constitutional came along. Yeah. Uh, and from there, the conversation went, oh, actually, we could have a more permanent venue at the mill. Uh, yeah. And they, having, you know, Having seen us in action, they were somehow weren't put off and thought, yeah, we'll take a chance on them and yeah. uh, get them going. So here we are. Yeah. I was there in September last year. Right. I up that way. Well, it's Sunny Bank Mills, yeah. yeah. Um, for the sort of beer festival of the brewery. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. The little micro brewery. <laughs> um, and the old Woolen was like rammed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just very busy down there. I was surprised because it seems like it's out. It seems like it's out far, but it's really yeah. busy around there. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, and it's funny. It's it, Farsley is a funny area. It's one of those areas. It's 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 built around the mill, so it's an old mill village, and it's one of those areas where everyone's like, "It's so far away." Yeah, and I'm like, "It's not really. Like, it's quite. Easy. <laughs> it's on the ring road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's and there's there's solid public transport links. You know, it's great. Yeah. It's but I think it's funny, isn't it? I think people have these maps of where you go to and not go to. But I think. So we started, the nice thing is we started with a very local audience. Like it was literally people pitching up from down the road. And as word of mouth has spread, it's, it's, it's got a wider audience and people are starting to travel to it, which is great. But yeah, but I really enjoy that sense of having, having worked in theatre and particularly in touring theatre for so long, you pitch up in a place and you don't really know anyone. You maybe get to meet the technician, Mm. you sort of do your show and go away again. It's been very rewarding to just get to know people and, and yeah. you'll like it. There's more, it's more embedded than the work I've done before. And that yeah. has felt really valuable. I think. Get to know people like Adam from down the road. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with you again, Adam. So take us through kind of going into lockdown, being in lockdown. Like, did you say you were actually out in the field when it kind of hit? Not quite. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do consider myself a field fieldwork scientist uh, so you know we, we were we had all sorts of other stuff scheduled for the coming year which was just completely instantly cancelled i do remember these kind of almost uh, apocalyptic styled scenes around the university campus because as lockdown um was enforced um the university basically shut the doors everything was very very quickly switched to online working um students all kind of in their uh, accommodation, staff all working from home. But they sort of put a deadline of Friday at 6 p.m. at some one of the weeks in March, you know, um, where basically that was it. Everyone had to be off campus. And so there were scenes of staff sort of rescuing things from their office and then wheeling them across campus on office chairs into the backs of cars. And there was a real sort of post-apocalyptic yeah. vibe you know, going on and uh, wondering if you'd see these people again. And, and it was hard, you know, because for me, part of the, part of the rewarding, um, aspect of the job is that 
you get to work with these students, you get to work with them on a day-to-day basis, face-to-face, you know, and that's, that's what lecturing is for me. You know, you, it's not just me sort of standing and talking to a room of students or alternatively talking into my laptop. Mm. You're actually engaging with the students and helping them to understand. And you only get that feeling if you're able to be, you know, really closely engaging with them. Mm. So yeah, there was this real big shift in, in kind of modifying content that was designed for a face-to-face delivery so that it could be appreciable, appreciated and learned from, uh, online. And it was a really big challenge. And I know that a lot of my colleagues and myself at various points sort of struggle with your, your mental health because you're, you're in these sort of lockdown, um, environments. No one's got the kind of the, the Wi-Fi connections to be sending in big data sets across between university servers mm. and, and your home laptop. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, I mean, going through it, the, I think there was times where we felt that maybe the university was being over risk averse, but of course. Mm. You've got these massive lecture theatres in which you can have 20 odd students socially distanced, mm. but it's not so much the lecture theatres that's the problem. It's the, the students traveling in the corridors between those lecture theatres, you know, squeezing 20,000 students through, uh, these small corridors and stuff. It's not the most ventilated and, and COVID safe, uh, working environment. So mm. yeah. And you know, the, the sense of risk aversion from the university. I think they were probably vindicated actually, because a lot of other universities were saying that come September, 2020, mm. they would, they almost guaranteed a return to, um, face-to-face yeah. teaching. But then of course there was the second wave and Leeds's reluctance to, um, to open up to face-to-face teaching. Um, like I say, it turned out that they, they were probably vindicated. And so mm. I would much rather have said to the students that, listen, we'll probably be online. And if possible, we'll do some face-to-face rather than the other way around, you know, market yeah. the university product to them as face-to-face engagement and then have to backtrack and bring it yeah. online. So in that sense, I think that Leeds made a, a pretty astute call and yeah, you know, we, we're starting to open up now at the tail end of it. Um, we're still pretty cautious and again, I still have this idea that we can try to schedule face-to-face stuff, but we'll bring it online if we really have to. I would say that there's a lot of good stuff that has come out of adapting to online learning, because I do think that there's a lot to be said for giving students different learning styles. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, some of their content is face-to-face is, you know, in direct contact and, and working very closely with academics, but then also giving them, um, online learning, letting them learn from videos that you've pre-recorded that they can play back and watch under, you know, whenever they want. Not least because, at least on the course that I teach on, a lot of the students who come on it want to create in the, the geoscience industries. And many of those would, in the future, would adopt a more work from home kind of working environment. Mm. So actually giving the students some experience of the sort of self-motivation that is needed for that work from home environment is actually quite an authentic way of doing things mm. and, and might be doing them a favor for the future world of work. So, Mm. um, you know, we, we can definitely take some bits of best practice out of, out of lockdown, but in some ways that, that almost feels like, you know, you, you're making the best out of a bad situation because none of us really, um, would have wanted to be, uh, effectively working from home for the last two years. We, Mm. we got into it because we enjoy the the face-to-face communications and discussions with your colleagues, with the students. And that's, that was really hit quite hard. Mm. 
had you always been a lecturer? Did you go sort of straight into the lecturing? So I did my, my PhD in Leeds, um, uh, up to 2007. I did the last year of the PhD in the University of Swansea. And that's when I started working more on glaciers. Thereafter in 2012, uh, I was, um, postdoctoral research and teaching associate at Imperial College London. I mean, this is the kind of, this is the part of the life of the early career academic. Basically you, you kind of work yeah. to contract and you, you go around wherever new contracts are springing up and eventually you will be able to have hopefully the publications, the, the kind of funding track record and things like that to secure a permanent role. Mm. And so in, it was only in 2015, uh, after doing seven years of, of postdoctoral, almost like itinerant postdoctoral work, mm. uh, that I got a, a permanent lectureship, but I had been doing quite a lot of teaching as part of my previous roles. Uh, but 2015 was my kind of first permanent job. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, so let's go to you, Dick. Um, I, so it was the lockdown question. I kind of forgot where we started then. <laughs> um, so yeah. So take us through your lockdown experience. Oh, I got COVID. That was fun. Straight uh, away or? Straight away. So that, uh, I thought I've got to get it in early. Um, <laughs> I was about nine months behind you, I think, Dick, when I got my day. Yeah, I I almost immediately got it. I mean, I probably got it. We were obviously working. I was in the venues um, right yeah. after the lockdown happened. Yeah. I remember we did. So we did one of the nights we do is a comedy night, um, which I compare. And uh, uh, I, I, actually, I remember doing a joke. This is this hasn't aged well as a joke. So, so, <laughs> so obviously when you when you're comparing, you're, you're getting the next act on, uh, and I was getting the, the getting the applause going. I said it's going to start with this particular guy I picked on out of the audience. It's going to start with you, and it's going to uh, spread across the room like some kind of Chinese virus, um, which is all at the time which was what people were talking about it. As. Yeah, as well. So it's like, oh, there's this yeah. weird uh, thing come from China, and it's and it's it, it, it might. And it seemed even at that point, and that was probably a week before lockdown, I think, yeah. even at that point seems quite remote, uh, as a, as a, as a thing, oh, I, I just think we had, we didn't have an idea. Well, having said that, I, uh, one of the things I did, and this is, uh, my, I tell you what, I, I always keep saying about 10 years ago, but I realized probably that I was talking about 20 years ago when I said 10 years ago, <laughs> I'm getting to that age now where you, you can't quite, <laughs> you know, remember when things are, but I do remember the year of this it was at 2011, I did a, a show called going viral, which is all about viruses. Um, we spent a, a, a year working with, um, an academic epidemiologist who was absolutely fascinating. And at that year prepared me really well because I actually got to this. I knew what an R number was before everyone else. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And like, I, we've gone <laughs> right through that and uh, uh, he, he'd spent a lot of time explaining it. So, and, and a lot of what he said absolutely came to be true. And he was going at that stage, it's going to happen really soon. I know it's going to happen really soon because we're just due for it. So it's, that was all, that was all quite, I was, I was more prepared in that. I was more prepared for the length of it, I think, than a lot of people were. Yeah. Because I'd had that experience. I knew it wouldn't be that quick. Yeah, and uh, and if, if if you get to the point where it's being as serious as it was, it's not going to be over in yeah. two weeks, and they're going to let us back. You, I was like, oh, this is going to be a thing. But having said that, I think at the start, I, I then got it, and I was quite ill, so I was I, I had to go into hospital and stuff for a bit, mm. and I was I had real problems with my breathing, mm. um, so I was ill for about three months. And I think well, during that time, I actually think I just got on with being ill. 
Um, like you know, it didn't necessarily feel like lockdown on a it, it did, but I think it, my experience was more what I am now is ill mm. and I want to deal with that. So I didn't really do much. I, I used to, what saved me in the end was actually just, um, not saved me. It's not, really, I wasn't going to die, but what, what helped me get better was, um, I just used to lie on my front. So I used to pop mm-hmm. a, a film on my laptop to make me lie on my front because it opens up your, your lungs and it helps you breathe more easily. Actually, that made a massive difference as soon as I started doing that. I thought you were going to say what saved you was your early theoretical knowledge of what the R number (laughs) was. I was like, R number knowledge working out for you now, then. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just, I was ahead of the curve, but I've lost my competitive event. (laughs) No, you took your eye off the ball. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, But then it was interesting. I think later on, it hit me what lockdowns had. So about six months in, I was then really like, my my bleakest moment was about six months into it. Mm. And I was a bit like, flipping it. I suddenly felt like all this work we're doing and suddenly the venues are are not happening and Mm. and theatres closed. And suddenly I was like, well, this is you know, really interesting. And all yeah. white come dried up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a, that was a, that was a fun time. So how, how long were you actually in the hospital for then? Were you on a ventilator or anything? No, they just, they sent me in for tests and stuff and they were x right. the chest and um, looking at whether fluid was building up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they were like, you. So I, was, but... I wasn't bad enough to be like, yeah. Or yeah. Literally. But it, it lasted for months. Yeah, it's three months. It's about three months. And I probably didn't get properly better for probably like in some terms of some of the effects, probably about a year. Like I like so, so afterwards I got um all my ankles. I said I'm sounding really old today. Like <laughs> my ankles went like literally I would get up in the morning for for months afterwards and like the real pain in my joints. And it and I'd hobble around like an old man in the morning and it would be yeah. oh flipping it. But I, I I think I kind of got over that. <laughs> like yeah. But I think it took a while. I think it was quite a, a thing. And I can't remember names. So I got it again. So I had it before Christmas again. Obviously the new variant, so you can get it again. Hurrah. Um, and I can't, I can't remember names. Like they just yeah. go out of my head. Like I, I'll blank. Like the other day I had someone who works down at the mill, who I see really, you know, every other day. Mm. And I was just like, I just couldn't remember a name. Like, and I spent all day actually worrying about it. I spent all day kind of going, I can't. <laughs> And it bothered me to the point where I was still thinking about it. I made me slow at 10 and then was like four o'clock. I went, I, I've got it. I know who it was. But it bothered me all that time. I was like, oh, yeah. it was just strange. <laughs> Maybe I'm just getting old though. Maybe that is age. I don't know. But it feels like there was a shift once yeah. I got COVID. So your experience during the actual lockdown, was it, you know, were you kind of out and about or were you sort of cooped up? Were you, I mean, obviously you dick you weren't working more i'm i'm you know by the sounds of it but yeah. adam did you end up working a lot more through it as well i suppose we yeah we were doing the same thing as far as teaching students and running classes and yeah. you know doing the, the research that a university researcher does but i guess the the real time sink was the conversion of teaching materials to online because mm. Um, I mean, you probably know yourself that when you're doing intros to podcasts or when I'm recording lectures, um, it often takes quite a number of takes. And so, um, you know, you, you just kind of, um, for one hour of teaching materials, you may be talking like 10 hours of preparation time, yeah. if, you know, maybe that's even a minimum. And so, yeah, it certainly felt much busier without it, without the perks of 
um, you know, the kind of coffee with colleagues and, you know, mm. having a chat to the students and everything. It was, it was really quite isolated. Funnily enough, I mean, you know, Quantum Source was one of the things that really kept me sane through the lockdown mm. because Quantum Source being this sort of live public engagement event, very much not allowed under um, lockdown conditions. Mm. It was always nice to talk about the research that various researchers are doing in preparing quantum source. And we were able to take quantum source online. So I would, um, we, we recorded them as a series of videos, um, which was me and an academic talking about the stuff that they do. Um, and you know, it, it was all somehow tenuously related to life under lockdown and viruses and, and things like this, but that felt like a, a real new bridge to the outside world from the comfort of my spare room at home. But yeah, it, it was only, well, my first time back on campus was probably October, 2020. And then the second wave came and we all got kicked out again. And it's only in the last, maybe uh, from November uh, of 2021 that, um, I really started having any regular presence back up on campus. Mm. So yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty difficult. Like it, it, it yeah, we, on one phase, I think this is maybe what people don't appreciate when they say that, you know, universities closed down, um, the, the wider public maybe doesn't appreciate that actually we might've closed down the university campus, but we were still educating students. We still had degrees going on. We still had research that was, that was continuing. It was just done under different and really rather more difficult circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. So. Dick, your experience, of, were you indoors, outdoors? I mean, you know, obviously you were spending quite a portion of it being sick. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's funny. I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite good at being indoors. Like I don't, yeah. I, it's not, I'm not one of the, I'm, I'm an indoorsy type. <laughs> if you have outdoorsy types, I'm probably an indoorsy type. And that's what it is. So that, that aspect of it, there comes a point where you want to get on about, but also I, I'm, 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 I was sort of built to be able to cope with that, I think, in, mm. and that was fine. I mean, it's just the uncertainty around work was quite a thing, I guess. Mm. Um, so that thing of going, who knows when all these places are going to open up again that I work in. So, and obviously the whole point of everything I do really is bringing people together in a room. <laughs> That's, yeah. You know, the point of live entertainment is here we are all in a room crammed in having a time. Thanks very much. And that is the one thing you suddenly couldn't do. So that, that was a, that was a, a funny thing. And a lot of people were suddenly like, we've got to do everything online and everything is going to go online. Yeah. Future of theatre is it's all going to happen in the virtual realm. And I was like, mm. you can see people almost overreacting and going into overdrive and being like, oh my goodness, I've got to, what am I going to do to cope with suddenly having this part of my life cut off? What, what can I do to give me meaning? And there was some good stuff. I mean, the quantum source stuff I thought was a really good example of that happening. Mm. But a lot of the stuff I was also a bit like, you know what, it, it, it's actually okay to stop as well. Like part of me was kind of like, yeah, I've, you know, I've worked really hard for that. Yeah, yeah. Also part of me was a bit like, yeah. you know, I'll finish painting the house, which I did. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, I think it was, I, I think I successfully got into a mode for a lot of it that was like, okay, mm. we're looking forward to the future, accepting what it, it, this can't be forever mm. because, but that, you know, I've got to do more work at some point. So this yeah, yeah. is closed forever and I have to go do something else. Yeah. You don't but, think about coding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know that that's my skills. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I also think we'll look back on it. And I, in some senses already do, like in terms yeah. of opening a new venue, although it's a, in many ways a bad time to do it, 
Mm. Um, Costco can't get people in a room. Mm. At the same time, it did allow us space to, you know, physically get space ready, but also yeah. do a lot of programming. We got really ahead on getting stuff booked in and that kind of yeah. um, thinking about what we were doing. And in many ways, I think we'll look back and go, the space was there to allow us to make this next phase a success. Yeah. Because suddenly there was a room to sit and go, what is it? It, it really questioned. Suddenly you are questioning what we're doing because yeah. it, you're having to. I'm sort of really struck by, you know, the approach that you lot at the, uh, the constitutional took in that you really did sort of capitalize on the situation. I mean, like you say, some people would say it, it would be insanity to try and open a venue during the <laughs> lockdown, but I think you very well, um, kind of preempted the appetite for live events that would come once lockdown was lifted. Mm. And so you saw around the place, I mean, I saw like pubs here up the road were taking the opportunity for refurbishment or something like that, but you lot took it to the next level and, and, you know, it seems to have been a, a pretty astute decision. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> no, yeah. no, I think so. I think so. And it's, yeah, it's cause also I think in terms of taking risk, I find, I find risk really interesting in terms of these things like, well, what, what's people's attitude to risk and in some ways it became a really risky time for us, but actually working for sort of freelance within the arts. You get quite used to taking risks. Yeah. You're kind of you, you get quite used to going, you know what, it'll work out. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the end, somehow we'll make it work. And I think that was a that that I think we've always a group of people, we've always been prepared to go, let's just do it. Let's just do it and see. Let's not too overthink it. Mm. Um, sometimes you've got to see the opportunity and go for it. So I'm glad we've done that. And now it feels you know what, lockdown feels so long ago now. Mm. It's funny, we've only really, I mean, we started doing socially distanced events initially. So in May, I think last year, go, kind of going through the summer and then from September, we've been fully open. But that's hardly any time at all. But honestly, that time of lockdown now seems... Oh God, the last away. one as well, that just dragged forever. Yeah. Like the winter yeah. one, like all through the darkness. Like this January is flying by compared to how slow that was going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that... For myself, I have kind of, I do feel like it's, um, like it's over, you know, when you say that you have got that sort of live event scene back on, I think it will take me a little while to readjust back into how the university was, um, you know, you, as much as a, a shock to the system as it was when we brought everything, you know, online working from home, that has been not quite perfected, but certainly refined over the, the two year period. And so actually. It's just as jarring a shock now to go back into the university. And uh, I, I must sound like a right curmudgeon, you know, to go like, oh, you've got to actually engage with people and you can't, you can't <laughs> pretend that you're bandwidth this bad. Sorry, I'm just going to turn the video off. And you have to put trousers on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But there is a there is a funny sort of mental state that, that, that it does sort of um, promote, you know, and uh, it... It, it is weird to go back into the campus and um, not just kind of look after yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. You're actually engaging with people. So it, it sounds a really weird thing to say, but I, I have found that in the last few or last couple of months when I have been on campus. Mm. What's remarkable is about how quickly we adjust to situations being dif different. And I think that's, I found that fascinating through this. Like, I think, I think people, that there's something of going once a situation changes, we go, that's the way it's always been. 
Mm. Um, lockdown. If you look back in the grand scheme of things, when we look back in our eighties, if we you know if we get there, we're going to be going. Oh, that was a couple of years that was pretty mad, wasn't it? Mm. Hopefully, such would just a couple of years. It doesn't flare up again. But and and I thought that you know I thought when I've worked in and back in the day when I worked in the theatre, we came in, changed some stuff, and you know change always brings resistance. And people were like, we, we can't do it. This is not this is not what we do. And I was like, just try it. Let's have a try and see how it works out. And then you'd have a bit of a review after six months. And and I'd be going, oh, this really worked, but I think we should be changing this actually, because this didn't, well, let's try it. And then people would be like, but that's the way it's always been done. And I'm like, it wasn't. I came in six months ago and you all objected to it. But I think our minds want, they need routine and they need, mm. uh, that. It, there's something about how we construct ourselves in the present and, mm. uh, what becomes thinkable in present moments, but yeah. you know, and that that then I think I'm gonna get that feeds into like how politics can suddenly go so, f- and I think politics has shifted so so radically within. Oh God, time. yeah, like even in the last, you know, you know, I mean, 2015 was, but even before 2016, and 2016 was a big year, and then it veered up and down, and then we hit this <laughs> decade, and it's like, oh, we're all stopping now, and it, yeah. it's crazy. So, um. Let's talk quantum source then. So how did it start? How did you two get together? What's it all about? Um, why are you doing it? Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I asked myself the same question. <laughs> but I guess somewhere in the the link between glaciological research and theater production and um, events hosting is, is quantum source. And really my, my idea for it came about because for all the glaciological work that you can do, you can go and predict what glaciers are like and how are they going to evolve and come up with all these sort of scientific data on the matter. Um, ultimately, that doesn't increase our resilience to sea level rise. It doesn't do anything about climate warming. Um, what you need is engagement with, with governments and critically engagement with the public because you know, there'll be a certain amount of scientific data that governments will engage with, but the other driver on government policy is, is public feeling. Yeah. And so the, the role of a glaciologist, I think increasingly is to, to help the public appreciate that sea level rise, climate warming, glacier behavior is important. It represents a significant risk and we really ought to be taking it seriously. Um, you ought to, you know, as a member of the public, if, uh, if you think it ought to be taken seriously, then you ought to be campaigning for kind of greener policies, more environmentally friendly policies um, within governments. And so I had a glaciological research project ongoing based in Antarctica on this Thwaites Glacier. And I, as part of the commitment to, to this project, I had to do some public engagement. And I thought that it, other public engagement outlets that I'd done Often the audience was made up of people from my research group who'd come along to give me some moral support. And I thought, yeah. no, I don't. Why did you call me now? Thanks very much for the support. But actually, why did you buy all the tickets? I want this and talk to members of the public. Yeah. And so I started to think about, well, what is the resistance? And why, why don't members of the public come to these events that we put on? And I thought, well, maybe it's because university academics can feel a little bit removed from the, the general public. You know, we, we sit you know, high and mighty in the, the ivory towers of the university. And maybe 
we're not very good at communicating what we do and the general public thinks that it's it's way beyond me you know all those boffins up there in the university well and also you're in a you're in a school aren't you it's like and yeah people have feelings about school <laughs> yeah right exactly you know they they just and and they don't engage with with things like physics and stuff because they think it's beyond them um, yeah. whereas actually you know understanding why it's important you might not you might not get all the technical detail, but you're not required to get all that technical detail. Yeah. If you have trust in those scientists and you can believe that they haven't got an agenda that they're trying to pull and that they're doing a reliable job, then you just have to understand why it's important and what the big message is. And so in thinking about these kind of um, public events I wanted to run, I realized that there wasn't quite the, the vehicle that was there for the, the audience that I wanted to, to engage with. And so I started to think about running one or another science nights. And at that point, I approached the team at the Constitutional. Because I'd been to the venue a, a bit. It's a, it's a nice space. I've been to one of the comedy events. And I'd seen also that, you know, you, you guys do some pretty left field stuff. And I thought, well, if we're going to do a science night, you know, it might be a nice venue. It's got an established scene, you know, of, of spoken word, of theatre. And at the end of the day, science is theatre. Uh, you know, to actually run an, uh, a, a kind of a research night there. So I um, dropped a, a Facebook post onto the, the constitutional page, expecting probably that, you know, within two weeks, I would get some sort of half-hearted response about, nah, well, it might work. Why don't you come in for a bit of a chat? Yeah. But actually <laughs> within 10 minutes, they've got back to me saying, right, this sounds really great. Let, let's have a chat. And so, um, yeah. Dick, anything you you want to put, you want to put me straight on that and say actually yeah I can go on who's this Joe Green what's he on about we're in the office having a right oh my goodness what we're gonna have yeah. you know? no it's great I, 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 we we just liked it straight away I think it's really good like I was a bit like I think honestly I was a bit like is there the audience for it don't know because it's it, it's you know it, it it's it's something that's not it's not done everywhere. I think it's quite an unusual night, so you haven't necessarily got the data of going. It will people come or not? But you know what, people mm. absolutely have, and it's it's been been some of my favourite nights actually. They've been it's been really um, really just fascinating, and you can really sense in the room kind of people engaging with it and people getting mm. on board with it, and that I, I think it's been fantastic. And I think there's you know I think there's an increasing appetite for like people knowing stuff. I think we're in a weird situation where, because in some ways we've got all the, we've got the right wing kind of questioning or these experts and should we believe these experts who, you know, know stuff um, and all that kind of thing. But on the other side, you've got like TED Talks happening and um, mm. I think like the rise of podcasts and the rise of like YouTube stuff, actually in those formats, people are getting more used to actually going, I'm going to find out about this thing and have a look yeah. at it this and that it kind of transplants that into a live environment maybe yeah so maybe actually now is the time and people are more prepared for it yeah i mean i definitely see that i mean i, I think when we started putting the the evenings on i was pretty blown away that there were 70 people there in the first event and this was before you know <laughs> word of mouth wasn't really getting around and i didn't know how it would go but there you go 70 members of the, the public yeah. just came in off their own back and it's really taken on a bit of a life of, life of its own. And certainly the, the big irony was, is that the, the first few events that we put on were themed around research, around Halloween, around Christmas and around Valentine's Day at those particular times of the year. Mm. And that was all to kind of 
for me anyway, it was to try and supercharge an audience ahead of the Antarctic one. And the Antarctic one was scheduled for March of lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the, the burst of our events to actually get canned. So um, the Antarctic one never happened. But we introduced a whole, you know, 150 members of the public um, to a whole different series of research going on. I mean, in the mm. Halloween one that we did, there was someone from classics looking at necromancy. There was osteoarchaeology. Uh, there was uh, horror screenwriting and, you know, all these different flavors of research coming into the public domain. And, um, yeah, I would, I was pretty blown away myself how, uh, how big an appetite there was for it. So mm. yeah, it's, it's been really good fun. So was it, I, I mean, sort of take us through your first session. Was it nerve wracking? Were you, you know, having delusions of being theatrical or was it just like lecturing <laughs> in the uni or? <laughs> Did you want to start it out? Or like, <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely an element to that. Just wing it and see what happens. I mean, I suppose I've, I've done lots of public engagement talks before, so I don't have too much of a problem in talking to the public. But, you know, I guess I'd pre-prepared some, well, kind of stand-up comedy routines to mm -hmm. uh, try and introduce each talk. And I'm not sure quite how they went. And in the end, I just kind of, Threw them out the window and just talked yeah. to people and introduced the speaker. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the one of the most rewarding things about it was that certainly the the first speaker that we hosted, when she arrived in the club and saw that it was essentially set up like a stand-up comedy venue and saw the audience, saw the stage in the corner with a spotlight directly on it and a microphone. I think um, she became really pretty nervous, but what she found was that. After five minutes of, of getting on with this talk, mm. um, I think she was really buzzing. You know, she came off almost feeling really empowered that mm. she could actually do this. And, and so that was really rewarding. I think for, for its first night, the event went really smoothly. And, and that's because, you know, you talk to these academics and they are used to talking. They are used to actually just talking about the stuff that they're really interested in. Yeah. And, and that's what they're doing. So. Um, other than it, it's slightly out of their comfort zone in the, the venue and the setup that it is, once they realize that the audience just wants to listen to what they've got to say, mm. um, they, they kind of enter this sort of Zen space that's very, very comfortable. They just talk about the research on ancient Greek necromancy that they do, for example. Yeah, it, I, I think it went really well. You, Dick? Yeah, it's great. We kept doing it. Proofs well, in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that was a great experiment, Adam. Really good. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe do that again one day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I probably would say um, on that one, I, I probably shouldn't have had as many beers out the bar as I should have done. <laughs> <laughs> but I just needed something to calm my nerves. But yeah, it was, it was. I think you've grown as a presenter within it as well. Like, I think you, because I think you handpick everyone, don't you? And uh, I think that's really and I think there is a sense for me of you growing as a someone who's capable of bringing them together on the night and just taking the audience on a little journey. Like I feel that that that's well, that, that, that's cool to hear you say because I do I do feel that um, I do feel that rather than just me standing there and introducing a speaker, there's more of a kind of curation that goes on rather yeah. than just hosting. And as such, that there is this theme that that runs through the night and. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really happy that that comes across, Dick. So, Dick, are you bringing, like, 
extra theatricality to it? Are you just doing lights <laughs> and music and pizzazz or what? I just I just drink beer really. <laughs> <laughs> drink, drink beer and drink beer and learn things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and heckles. I don't know. <laughs> try not to anyway. Are you are you running a quiz night at the Constitution? Like, are you now the king of quizzes? From we do. Me and Shoss do a quiz sometimes when we've yeah. got nothing else on. We'll we'll whack a whack a quiz on. It's not always family friendly. That's what I'll say. <laughs> yeah. And we get I, think, I actually think that the quiz is more of a vehicle for um, chopped anecdotes. It is Chuck, Chuck Showbiz anecdote. He loves the yeah. Showbiz anecdote. So when you met this person that did that. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like, right, question 14. Right. There was this bandit in the 60s. In fact, right, I'll tell you, before we do that, let's just put the question one side. I'll tell you a bit about this. And anyway, 10 minutes later, you finally get to hear the question. He'll do that. And then to me, you'll be like, come on, hurry up. We need to get on with the questions, Dick. And I'm like, yeah. I've just been walking on. <laughs> So if you had a universal basic income, would that change your work? Would you still be doing the same roles? Would you do the same roles differently, like work less or what? How would that change things? Let's start with Dick this time. Uh, um, <laughs> would it change? That's a really good question. So I'm, uh, I certainly think we should be experimenting with EBI. That, that certainly, I think we need to be thinking about that. I mean, I think there's all sorts of, we're about to go into really e interesting economic times, aren't we? Because we're about to get inflation for the first time in as long as really I can remember in my adult life, I think that, yeah. that I can think about inflation being a thing. And I don't think we're prepared for that because we just don't remember it. So I think that we're about to reap the whirlwinds of uh, like wage depression. And I think wage depression is a massive issue. And I think, I think you was worth experimenting. I think we should experiment with it. Like I, I wouldn't go do it everywhere tomorrow, but I would yeah. go, um, I would go, let's really experiment with it and think carefully about it and think, how do we deal with the, the I think the low wage issue and the, the ways in which the workforce is needing to change. Uh, Cause I think that needs dealing with <laughs> like, like, like that's a massive, massive problem. So, um. so politics aside, would I, would I stop working? <laughs> I don't think I would stop working. I mean, would it take the pressure off or would it make things boring for you? Because you, you know, you, like you say, you're used to a certain amount of uncertainty in, in the income and in work, like, would, would you miss that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I like, I like, I think you learn to live with that uncertainty. Mm. I don't think it's very helpful. Yeah. Like, and, and, and I, and certainly there's a certain amount of privilege in my background, which, you know, so in terms of risk taking, but it's all very well, someone like me waffling on about risk, but I'd mm. come from, yeah, a relative, I'm not got a super rich background, but rich enough, mm. um, that I've, there's been things for me within my family to be able to fall back on, you yeah. know, and, and if you, if you can't do that, then you don't get to end up taking those risks, um, yeah. you know, and, and that disproportionately affects, um, you know, people of um from poorer backgrounds and you know that we know it affects people of color and things like that more so you know so absolutely so you know that's a position of privilege when i speak about risk mm. and and yeah I, that that should absolutely be removed so i see there's a lot and it's interesting in the arts in the middle i mean there's a lot of a, a, a good push for diversity diversity i don't really like diversity as a, as a word but mm. there's a good push for different people being represented but I think there's still enormous structural problems with what does it really take to 
bring equality and that is allowing people to make their autonomous decisions and take risk. And Uber, Universal First Kingdom is a really good way of doing that. Like that to me is it's it's one of its things it really does. And I think that's why it can work for right and left. So I think clearly it provides for people and therefore, you know, it, it, our kind of joint responsibility society, that's the kind of left view of it. But also in terms of entrepreneurship and things like that, actually take a risk on starting a business. Yeah. You know, because actually, because actually, you, you you'll be supported through it. So, like, uh, so I think there's a, I think that's one of its best arguments. Actually, that yeah. it's not a, it's not necessarily right left. There's not necessarily a right left division in it. And also coming from the perspective of so, so my wife's got a chronic illness and had to leave work and stuff like that. So again, you go, well, that would be rich. You know, that yeah. it would take the uncertainty out of if working is uncertainty, going through the disability benefit system. Yeah. is one of the worst experiences we've ever had like it, it's inhumane and uh and the tories deserve every criticism for the way they've handled that system so you know uh, so i think so i think there's lots of positives we had like i think i think uh i think we probably do need to yeah i think we're in a, a position where it absolutely we need to be thinking about what our relationship to work is yeah but also it's not about going work work's a good thing like like i do stuff you know i think it as lockdown has shown it gives us meaning gives us a reason to get up get out you know it it it, it can be a very good thing but we also are um i think when we're disconnected from you know i'm very lucky to be able to have a job I really enjoy and I feel directly the benefit of it in terms of getting to know people and putting events and seeing and seeing the work I put in translated into what happens on stage essentially and that's great I think when, when you get those jobs where it's very you're just that one cog in the machine and you have less autonomy and you're less you know you're less able to see that direct connection between what you're working and what the output is mm. uh, I think that you know that's a very that's a very different position to be in so yeah and you'd work less hours do you think well, you'd think I'll work sort of... less hours I mean, because theatre is one of those, it's one of those industries where, you, you know, you might sit around for a couple of months not working. And then when you're working on something, you know, you, you end up coming up to rehearsal week and stuff and tech week and you're working yeah. like, you know, 14 hours or whatever. Yeah. So I, you know what I, I, and, and I think it would be difficult to, I don't know, I not necessarily is the answer. I don't think you'd immediately go, well, because that, that kind of aspect of work is taken care of. And presumably you're setting it at a level. So you have to have a discussion about the level you're setting. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that, like, it's presumably not enough to resolve to really, you know, live in the lap of luxury that I do now, mm. for example. Yeah. But where is that set? So there, so so I think you'd have to set it at a point where there's also incentive to work mm. like that. Like, because I don't, like, I don't think it would be good just to all stop work tomorrow. Universal yeah. Best Kingdom isn't about stopping work, is what I would say. Yeah. And if it is, then it, then I go, well, hang on, that's how's, that's all very well, but how's that going to function? But it's about, it's about actually incentivizing work and making work more meaningful and, and, and questioning why we're doing what we're doing. So that, mm. yeah. Okay. Adam. There's a lot of overlap there with what Dick was saying about why do people work in, in the sector that, that Dick's in, uh, compared to us, because, uh, you know, I think. People in universities, they, uh, they work in universities because they really like what they do. But there does need to be that question about um, the the role of work and the work life balance because it can it can very very sort of spiral out of control and and take it over. I mean, there's certainly a lot of 
mean, you, you'll be aware of the sort of uh, ongoing disputes between university unions and universities UK and the sort of strike actions. Um, and part of that, you know, the, it, it's a multifaceted thing, but part of it is um, the kind of goodwill economy that the university runs um, that, you know, it just expects that people will do this stuff because they like it. You know, they, they like the relationship they have with the students. They like the research that they do. So of course you don't mind working on this till 10 o'clock every night. Um, so there are, there are big questions in the sector and, you know, they, they go into, well, like I said earlier, the, uh, the whole kind of postdoctoral culture before you get your permanent job, you are moving around contract to contract. And, and it's that precarity that is, that, that's really considered it often universities plug gaps with uh, short-term contracts with people who are really kind of working to that contract and not really given the the, the freedom and flexibility to, to to really do the things that are going to help them secure the next job. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on of a lot of people within the university sector who are in that situation. I don't see that necessarily being changed by the provision of universal basic income, but for those who are trying to juggle that very kind of demanding work-life balance with things like care responsibilities, they're you know, working, you know, one contract here, one contract there, and just trying to make up the hours, um, or at least the hours they're being paid for, I could see that it would be um, a really valuable kind of foundation for them. And it would, it would take some of the pressure off. And I think it would alleviate some of the quite significant mental health issues that are present within the university sector. I also think that, yeah, student tuition fees are going to rise. And so if it was there, then it could also benefit the student body, just giving them that little bit of uh, extra support to make the tuition fees that they're being charged. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, whether it would change my, you know, whether if 10 years ago, we'd have already had universal basic income, um, I'm not sure that it would have changed my career trajectory all that much, mm. but it certainly would have made me less desperately worried as I approached the end of contracts about where I was going to go next. And I mm. think that, I mean, it all worked out for me. So I, I suppose I do speak from that point of privilege that, you know, whenever I was in need of a contract, uh, it was lucky that a, a contract came up at another university that was a positive step forward for me. Mm. But uh, I don't think that that is widespread. People get to the point where they'll just take whatever's being offered or they'll leave the sector. And that's something of a brain drain. You know, you get some very, very talented people who can't continue simply because they can't afford to live anymore. Yes. So I doubt it would have changed the overall trajectory for me, but it would have certainly um, reduced the, uh, the sense of pressure that I felt as I approached the end of, of one particular position. Mm. All right, let's go on to, uh, let's, let's do Brexit. Um, I mean, I was going to ask Adam, are people leaving the HE sector in the same way that they're leaving a lot of other sectors? Like, are you having quite an exodus of staff at the moment? I wouldn't call, I wouldn't necessarily call it an exodus, but there are colleagues who've left because of Brexit. Yeah. I think that it makes the situation, it makes the, the university appear and probably, you know, the universities are, uh, sorry, the the UK as a whole, and appear much more kind of isolationist. You know, you're supposed to, you know, science breaks down barriers and opens up borders and just allows people collaboration. And that's the kind of philosophy behind it. But 
that's all kind of undermined by the, uh, the, the kind of scene that, that Brexit promotes. And so whilst I don't know if there's an exodus of staff who are already in jobs, because after all, uh, like I've said, university jobs are pretty difficult to get. So, um, you've really got to be feeling some quite significant Brexit pressures, I think, in order to consider giving it up. But I think it makes EU staff much more reluctant to come to the UK to take up positions. So again, you, you're having a, a, a brain drain within UK PLC because you can't attract those um, talented researchers in the first place. And it's not just staff, it's, uh, it's PhD students, it's postdoctoral researchers who are based in continental Europe and simply don't want to come into the UK because of the Brexit scene. In terms of sort of the, the, the research climate and the research funding, I haven't yet seen too many schemes that suddenly embargoed UK participation. Um, that, that might well come, but at the moment, things like um, EU funding, European Research Council, uh, schemes like Horizon 2020, uh, UK researchers were still welcome to be part of those. Um, but again, that's really undermined by the, 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 the image that we project. And so I, uh, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really bad situation. You get these really talented researchers who suddenly are made to feel like they're unwelcome. You know, I have heard stories of you know, people being hassled by the Home Office, not able to secure contracts, not able to easily bring their spouse in. And the whole thing just makes it um, really unattractive for them yeah. to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And not to mention expensive as well. <laughs> but the whole thing that goes with it, I mean, from the um, I've not been in a situation really where I've had to do this because of the, the restrictions on, um, on, on travel and fieldwork, but we, you know, we, we benefited from the ability to send really big shipments of equipment through borders without any kind of customs, um, yeah. implications at all. Uh, but now, you know, undertaking fieldwork when you're going to drive a whole bunch of equipment, um, across the continent into the Alps or send it by plane or whatever, um, that um, lack of access to sort of a customs union uh, is, it, it could be really damaging. We, we don't want to get tied up in red tape. We don't want to have to um, spend the precious research money trying to get this stuff moving. We don't yeah. want to spend the time doing it. We'd much rather be just getting on with the work that we want to do. Um, and it just seems that everything is made exponentially more difficult and therefore more expensive um, to, to overcome those hurdles. Yeah. So the, like, I, I mean, do you see any Brexit benefits or can you like, uh, none whatsoever. I mean, uh, if the, if the UK starts to, uh, you know, look more outward and, and it, it, it has favorable, um, you know, tries to replace the, the EU brain drain with, um, students from, from China, from India, from elsewhere around the world, that okay, you can have access and, um, uh, you know, more welcoming culture for, for students there. So I guess that's beneficial, but I don't see why those two things would be mutually exclusive. You know, we could welcome EU students just as much as we could welcome students from elsewhere, mm. uh, likewise staff from elsewhere. So, um, no, I, I, I can't see a single benefit of Brexit for the university sector. Um, okay. So Dick. Uh, same question to you like I mean not necessarily about people leaving I know that there's been some staffing issues in theatre uh, I was talk when I was talking to Sale uh, Phil 
from Sale was saying that TV's stealing a lot of theatre people because there's so much production on. Have you noticed any change in the business, in the industry from Brexit? Any benefits, any negatives, any change at all? Or has it all been tied up with COVID? It's really, it, it, it's interesting because I think the COVID thing is that like, it's so difficult. Like, mm. I think there's been so much like immediate survival chat that it actually thinking, I'm, I'm not sure I do know what the Brexit implications are yet for us. Like, I think obviously it's different for people working internationally. And there's, there's, I do know people who are taking work to Europe and, you know, and further. And that, that's obviously suddenly got a lot more difficult and expensive. Yeah. And there were, there, there was certainly been a lot of, uh, European cultural money in the sector, which is not going to be there. So that's not very good. <laughs> Basically, that's a, that's a, a net loss. I, I, I think as a sector, I mean, it, it's a very, um, it's, it's a predominantly freelance workforce, which I think mm. has got its own massive issues with it. And, and that's obviously linked into what we've been talking about really in terms of um, like privilege and people's ability to ride on through storms and all that. So I think, I think, um, I think there's been a sort of survival mode, which has kicked in, um, that, yeah, I, I will probably see more in a bit what the other impacts are. I mean, there's been stuff certainly like in terms of running the venues, like, and you're stocking your bar, like supply chain stuff. Mm. It's definitely affected us, uh, not too badly, fortunately, with the suppliers we work with. But there's been points where we've everyone was worrying about gas, and everyone was worrying about bits and pieces. You you can get hooch phrases. See, that's you know, I mean, in some ways, first world problems, eh? But you know, come on, <laughs> sell hooch, uh, classic nineties drink, making a comeback. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Has it affected prices much then? Like in terms of your supplies, your supply prices just sort of fluctuated quite wildly or has it just been like they've been nudging up like for us it's not been like it's not been uh, suddenly we can't afford anything yeah um but you know it's nothing's getting any cheaper let's put it that way Mm. yeah Certainly, the EU students now charged um international fees so we have noticed that you know the EU students they they just uh they have really dried up well yeah now it's like well i could go if I'm not going to Europe, I could go anywhere in the world. Yeah, right, exactly. So why do I yeah. want to go well, further north in a continent I'm already on? Yeah. <laughs> or, or even if saying, you know, University of Leeds was my number one choice, but actually it's going to cost me twice as much to go there. So um, I'll get, you know, uh, just as good an education from another European university, I'll go there. Mm. Sorry, Dick, not to butt in on your hooch stories then. Yeah, no, no, no. Absolutely. I mean, it's much more pressing than the hooch, isn't it? Um, uh, it's funny that all of these areas are always areas, I think, where a, a debate is needed and there's intelligence debates to be had on either side. But these fools who are leading it, blimey, they're not the people to be leading it. Let's not do it under that regime. Like, like that, for me, like, I think there is a discussion to have about our relationship with Europe. Mm. This wasn't the discussion I wanted to have. <laughs> um, it, you know, it played into all our worst instincts, and therefore, I, I, it, in what level is that is that going to be a good thing for us? I think there is a discussion to be had around the the role that the EU takes in politics in terms of its stance in relation to business and neoliberalism. Mm. I don't think that's anything like the debate we had. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and I think with the universities, I mean, I've that. So I'm, I, again, coming back to how old I am, um, like when I was at university and involved in NUS politics, as I was for a little while, um, 
the uh, I'm old enough to remember Grants Not Fees as a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost that one. Sorry, guys. Um, but even then, I thought there was a massive expansion of the university sector in many ways at that point. And I, I don't think there was always at that point a discussion about what are universities for and what and why are people coming to them? What's the what what function and role do we want them to play mm-hmm. in society? And I think that's that still is rumbling on. I know I'm not as totally involved in that as a sector, but as I as I as far as I can see, I think there's a still a kind of the impact of that and that sense of what function do these institutions play within our society, which actually is an incredibly valuable function and is incredible and is under attack actually in terms mm-hmm. of uh, how yeah, essentially. The rise of the right they don't want to get very political now but i don't know they didn't, well, anyone, <laughs> but the rise of the right they they don't want thinking to happen and they don't want people to be able to reason and they don't want people to be able to analyze stuff and that's what universities ultimately enable us to do um and so it, it's it's understandable that as that politically is happening that that is being eroded hmm. um so again it's often i think these things are the 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 right debates had in the wrong way is what leads us into trouble. <laughs> I'm going to move on to the climate change question now, but I'm going to start off with, uh, so I'm going to start off with you, Adam, but based on what you were just saying there, Dick, like, so I read the Naomi Klein book back in 2015, that this changes everything. So I'm a total expert on climate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the things that she says in the opening of that book, she's talking about uh, being at the Heritage Foundation. And, um, like she kind of makes the point that it, uh, the changes that need to be made are kind of incompatible with the world that we, we live in and function in and that everyone's kind of making money out of, you know, in the same way of like changing the oil industry and so on. So, I mean, you obviously work in an area where you work on climate change to, yeah, largely. So how does climate change figure into your work? Like what's happening? Like what, what, what's going to happen? What's going, what's going on, Adam? What's going on? Right. So, uh, in about 10 words, here's your answer, right? (laughs) Um, no, it's not going to happen. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I think I probably have a, a slightly controversial opinion. Good. In that, um, I, um, I do a lot of work on glaciers, looking at their role in climate change, but the teaching that I do, a lot of the students who come into um, uh, to, to a geophysics degree are interested in a career in the hydrocarbon sector. Yeah. So um, a lot of the time I'm teaching these students how to do seismic exploration and that's research that, or it's research and teaching that is potentially sponsored by oil companies and certainly uh, oil companies are the big um the, the big employers uh, from those sectors. Now, of course, that means that um, you, you do come in for, for criticism that you're supporting oil companies, and certainly, um, you know, the University of Leeds took a, a stance and a few years ago announced what it called its climate principles. And one of those was that um, it would no longer take funding and support the activities of companies whose primary interest was in hydrocarbon production. Now. That sounds great on paper, but actually you've got to be very, very careful that you don't shoot yourself in the foot here, because if you think of geoscience moving forward into what we call the energy transition, you know, the, the low carbon future, you're still going to need resources through that. 
Um, and actually geoscience and geophysics has a lot of the solutions that, that you need. So for example, if you want to take, um, carbon dioxide emissions and store them underground, um, you need geophysical surveys in order to map out the initial storage repository to make sure that the carbon dioxide that you stick in the ground is actually staying there and it's not kind of migrating off elsewhere in the ground and just coming straight back up into the atmosphere. Um, you're going to need geophysics for, for mineral resources. So actually, if you undermine our capacity to train the next generation of geoscientists, mm. you really do yourself a disservice in tackling climate change. And so, you know, you look at the, the, the energy companies that are out there, they also have the technologies that will be the kind of engine room of those, um, those low carbon technologies. So, uh, they have the, the technical know-how about taking stuff out of the ground, like oil and gas. They've been sticking carbon dioxide in the ground for, for years, uh, because they use it to, um, improve pressure drive. So for example, yeah. as you suck oil up out of, um, a reservoir, you deplete the pressure in that reservoir. So you've got to boost that pressure and you do that by injecting carbon dioxide into another end of the reservoir. Mm -hmm. So they know how to do it. I think that where I'm a little bit dubious about is, um, how much those companies are really putting the money where the mouth is. I think that I'm really, really keen to see that that message is starting to get out, but I would prefer some sort of accelerated development in that field from the hydrocarbon companies. And again, this is where the whole sort of public engagement idea comes in. You know, you, you've got to explain to people in terms that they can understand why this is really important and why it's worth pressuring governments in, in a more environmentally friendly way, because that's the only way that it's, it's going to come about. These companies are out to, to make money and make profits and there needs to be, um, a degree of, uh, well, either incentivization or, uh, more kind of punitive measures to make them actually evolve in a more climate friendly way, but undermining teaching capacities in those core skills, I think is a really bad idea. The universities now kind of slightly revise that opinion and rather than kind of eliminating expertise and the technical know-how and the training, uh, in sort of hydrocarbon geophysics directions, it now approaches it more as like a net zero challenge, mm. which I think is, is, is much more, well, I, I think that's a better thing to do. Yeah. Like, I just want to stay with you a bit longer, Adam. Mm. Um, so. You know, you, you're taking trips out to glaciers and so on, and you're seeing the kind of data firsthand. And the, you know, the story that I see in the media is that, like, you know, scientists are kind of like, ah, you know, really alarmed and panicking, and they're, they're not seeing the response from the public that they want. And then, obviously, you've got that flip side. Like, uh, it, is that a conflict of interest for you? Is that some like, how do you navigate that? Is that something that's already like, and how does that impact this, the, the science for you? I mean, you've already got the kind of work, work side of, of all of that. Like, how does that kind of play out for you? Sorry, you, you mean that, um, the conflicts of interest comes in where? Well, I, I mean, you know, in that your students are kind of going to be working in that industry and potentially, right. um, some of their courses might be funded or part of the faculty might be funded by fossil fuel. Like, I don't know, I haven't researched like yeah. who's funding what in there. So. But, you know, I suppose that there could be, uh, times when, you know, your students or the, the faculty is being funded by one of the big, you know, or yeah, um, I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, I'm, 
I think I uh, approach the teaching in a, in a really rather objective way um, the, with, with showing the students how to do a particular technique that's equally um, applicable on a glacier, let's say, or for looking at future geothermal resources mm. as it is uh, for hydrocarbon exploration. Now, you could say that that's a turning a convenient blind eye to it. Um, so I, I see where you're coming from. When I had my lectureship interview, one of the questions that was put to me was by um, uh, a member of the, um, the, the, the Climate and Atmospheric Institute within the university. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, how is this going to sit? You know, you, you, you're going to be at the head of a program that has a lot of interest in, in, in the oil sector, yet here's you as a, as a researcher looking at climate. How do you think that squares? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. What I would hope is that with my kind of more climate sensibilities, you train a generation of students who are more sustain sustainably minded mm. that in the past where, you know, maybe they weren't taught about the adverse consequences of oil exploration and why we should be moving away from it. I'm going to make that central to a lot of the teaching that I do. Mm. And so we, you know, been trying to kind of broaden what we teach the students so that we're not specifically talking about hydrocarbon reservoirs. Mm. We're talking about geothermal reservoirs. We're talking mm. about um, potential exploration for um, carbon dioxide storage targets and monitoring that in the ground. So at least they, I mean, what students choose to do once they come out of the degree is, is up to the students. But if I can influence them to think more environmentally and more sustainably and be aware of these climate change issues, then I think it, that engagement with them, I do think is valuable. We get, um, you know, in the day, I mean, <laughs> I suppose this is one of the Coming back to the question about how did things change uh, after lockdown, one of the things we would do would be to regularly host um, career seminars for students. And these pre-lockdown all would happen in a kind of like face-to-face -face way. And the only companies that were really big enough to be able to afford to send a, a representative up for the day, for effectively for a 40-minute seminar to the students, um, with the big oil companies. And mm -hmm. so that would almost polarize the view for the students about what being a geoscientist actually meant and mm -hmm. who does geoscience and why did they do it. With the lockdown, those physical format seminars went out of the window. And so I was able to actually sort of tap into a much wider swathe of, of the geoscience industry and bring in very different speakers from very different sectors. And, you know, just in the next couple of weeks, we've got someone from the British Geological Society coming in and talking about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. So, you know, whilst they might be learning the core geophysical content that, yes, does have applications in the hydrocarbons industry, they become much more aware of a much bigger scene going on and hopefully a much more climate-friendly application for geoscience in the future. Mm. And I really want to get that message out to, you know, school kids who are considering what university course to do, you know, mm. the, um, whilst geophysics and geoscience has been a big part of the hydrocarbons industry in the past, it is the key to the future to actually doing some really good stuff um, to combat climate warming. Yeah. Okay. So, Dick, uh, in terms of climate, then, so I mean, what what can you do? What are you doing? It, like, is it a worry for you? Is it a business concern? Like, what's your, what's your climate work take? From a business point of view, well, from running it. I mean, that, like, like <laughs> I work in the most unsustainable industry ever, I think. Like, <laughs> Two of them. Little vans and drive everywhere <laughs> all the time. It's like, it's quite, it's not, it's not set up in, in an environment in any way. Yeah. So that is an inherent thing within the industry. 
uh, I mean, we look at, we do look at, we tend to look at like, like, I guess the stuff that it, it is, um, like on the bar, you go, you, we look at, we tend to look at a line at a time and go, is in there, um, a way that this could be more sustainable. Um, so you get stuff like you can get, um, these plastic pouches that are like refill bottles and then they're meant to be more environmentally friendly. So there's that kind of minutiae of stuff that we, we do look at. Um, and it's an industry more expensive though, is it like, you nope. know, to take, no, nope. nope. good. Most cheaper. It's good. Cause it's so, uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a carrot. Not a stick kind of, <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, uh, the stuff like, I mean, as an industry, like the stuff like lighting has shifted its technology. So that's yeah. a good thing. So, um, it used to be um your, your traditional generic lighting would took an enormous amount of power where everything's gone led and that that uses a lot less power for yeah. example that's a shift in the technology i mean it's in, it's interesting isn't it i mean i think so i think the answer is yes and no yeah <laughs> like being re- if, like, if i'm 100 percent honest like i think i think we do mm. um think about it but i also think it's not a primary focus yeah because be- because i think the f- format of it I think so many of these things. I like, like, I, like I'm, I'm far from a scientist, so I don't know that I understand everything in terms of what we should be doing. But I also think it's almost like I think we've seen with the pandemic, like public health as a thing, mm-hmm. it works much more effectively when there's really clear messaging and there and there's a real sense of we're acting corporately in order to do this, yeah. and 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 the government are going. These are the steps that we need to take because this yeah. will make some kind of structural difference. Yeah. And I think that there's some kind of nonsense within this. And now it's all your own individual choice and you've got to make your individual choices and that will keep this virus down. Now there's a level on which that's true. So it's not going that, like that, 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 that will individual choices do make a difference. Mm. They don't make the same level of difference, uh, in the same amount of time as those big, that, those corporate actions take. So I, th- I think I sort of think. I don't think any individual decisions we make are irrelevant within climate change. Mm. Um, but I also don't think the solutions at this stage seem to me anyway, as someone who doesn't really understand it, um, seem to me, am I going to recycle more or not? Yeah, like, yeah. Actually, like, actually, I don't feel that that's going to make the difference at this point. I think we're too yeah. late for that, aren't we? Yeah. Um, it's actually what are the structural changes that need to be made and can we support those? Yeah. Can our government overcome you know, and that's business and, it, and it, business is becoming increasingly to talk about us as a business. We're just some little chaps in Farsley selling some beer and putting some comedy on, you know, yeah. you know, th- there's business and there's Amazon, yeah. you know, like, like the, the different, the, the different scale of what we mean now when we talk about business. Yeah. And I think coming from a sort of left perspective, it's always business is the enemy. Um, mm-hmm. but like that, but there's such differences in terms of what those things are doing in terms of environmental impacts, which is what we're talking about. So, so, so I, so for me, it's kind of going, yes, I, th- I want us to be as environmentally friendly as we can. Do I think that will save us from climate change? Actually, no, I don't really. Mm. I think it, like, like what is the corporate action that's going to cause government to, to sit up and actually do something about it and whatever it is, make people like us do it. Like at the end of the day, I think you have to make people do the things that we need to do. Yeah, but I don't think there's the, there's actually that much resistance. Like you know, like you said about quantum source, and I've 
I've said to other people, I do think there's an appetite out there for it. Like, I think there's an army of people just waiting for the like go signal to be like, right, we can get on this. We can do this. We can get rid of that. We can change this. You know, I think like people are ready for it. And after like essentially switching the world off for lockdown, it's like, oh, right. Well, we can, we can do whatever then really. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's I guess the big thing to do when, when Dick says that, you know, theater industry is sort of inherently, uh, carbon hungry because people travel around and everything mm. like that, you know, it, it requires the sort of big investments. If the government is serious about doing something about it, it's the big investment in, uh, you know, the, the electric vehicles, for example, the, the carbon capture. So. Um, the, the classic argument people make about electric vehicles is, ah, yeah, but you still got to make the energy for, to charge them. But for me, the thing is you, you make that energy as a central power plant and you can suck up the emissions yeah. and stick them under the sea somewhere. Yeah. Um, so the cars themselves become inherently non-polluting, but, um, there's, um, yeah, there's still all sorts of infra infrastructural change that needs to happen there. So, you know, I agree with Dick in the sense that it, it's actually pretty difficult for an individual to do something about it. Um, I might want to buy an electric car, but there's no way I can charge it outside at the moment. You know, I've got on-street parking and, and what am I supposed to do? Like trail an extension lead out of the house. You know, it, it's it's really difficult. So it, it does need um, the, the government to be putting the money where the mouth is if they're serious about doing something about it. And I do think we need to get serious with it. I mean, one of the things that individuals can do, I think uh, what we can do collectively, and to, so I've realized my position there sounds like one week ago, well, we don't, shouldn't bother doing anything because, you know, we can't really achieve anything. But I guess there's that sense of going, it being on the agenda and people mm. going, this is important mm. and, and I'm going to treat it as important within what we're doing. That puts pressure on organizations and ultimately on the government to make a shift. Yeah, definitely. And I think that even if there's, you know, if there's not like, if in terms of like the, uh, the practical solutions to it that the entertainment industry can do, things like quantum source, is to keep it on the agenda. It's to get people talking about it, to communicate it, and 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 to really kind of fire people up about it. One of one of the frustrating things that I've seen. So, like mentioning twenty fifteen earlier, like there was a big movement in twenty fifteen. There was a big climate push going on then, and then it was like you know it got moved off the news agenda to something else. And then again, coming into the pandemic, as the pandemic was rising up, the headline you know trends. You know, Australia was on fire. America was on fire at the same time. Like climate change was again, sort of like, we really have to do something about this. And then it all became COVID and it sort of, it fell down again. I want to ask you, Adam, as well, because you do, I mean, have you done much work with the soils? I know you do the glacier stuff, but you mentioned in your bio that you've done some soils stuff. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in terms of other environmental problems like topsoil loss or like right. plastic in the soil or mm. like i mean uh, do you do you see much of that kind of stuff are you working in those areas well i guess the other part of um you know where it comes into the work that i do is um to look at what happens when you have um increasing incidence of like dramatic rainfall events and things like that so i've never I'm not a, I'm not a soil scientist. I'm not looking say for microparticles in the soil or looking at, um, topsoil erosion. Although, you know, I have colleagues who do, and I have every faith that the, the quite serious messages that they put across are, are reliable. 
But a lot of what we do is also looking at the resilience of, of infrastructure to, you know, increased rainfall. Um, so there'll be geophysicists, say the British Geological Survey, who are looking at the increased prevalence of, of landslip and landslide. So this isn't just, um, you know, sea level ingress and, you know, you needing to build coastal barriers and things like that, you know, um, here we are in Leeds, like pretty high up, pretty far from the coast. You'd kind of think that you may be uh, resilient to it all, but you're not when, um, all of a sudden you've got increased flooding. I mean, there's so much like flood works going on down at the, the river at the moment. Mm. It, it's yeah, we, we, we do see that so much of our infrastructure comes from kind of Victorian times, railway embankments and stuff like that. Um, and how they will respond to uh, a generally wetter climate, maybe, mm. maybe more extreme summers, but wetter winters or something like that, um, is really quite concerning. And so there's a lot of effort that goes into understanding and trying to predict how situations like that are going to evolve. Mm. Um, okay, so sorry, go on. Dick. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it is in terms of the arts generally. The it's much more on the arts council's agenda now. So, so yeah. they're, they're within the funding streams. They're looking at. Um, there's now questions in the forms way where, where you're applying for funding to go. What what are you doing to look at environmental impact and all that kind of stuff? Well, actually, I mean, like bring it back to to quantum source. The the online videos that we made during the um, during the lockdown were funded by Leeds Inspired. And so when we filled out this Leeds Inspired form, um, there was a section that specifically said, Leeds has declared a climate emergency. What is your arts project going to do to help communicate that? Mm. Now for Quantum Source, it's, an, it's a, an easy sell. We had speakers talking about plastic recycling, talking about electric vehicles, um, you know, lots and lots of environmental issues, both from the sort of societal and from the physical sciences side. Um, but yeah, D Dick's entirely right that the, that is, it seems to me to become um, increasingly prominent as well. Mm. Anything to add? What I don't know is how to sort it all out. Like it's such a massive problem, isn't it? I think that's, yeah. and it's, and it's, I, I think the, that education side of it's really interesting because I think it's, it's, it's massive, but it's not a solutions to it are complex and have impacts on other things. And I think that can be very disincentivizing for people. I think it's one of those things about how do we go? We know there's a problem, but once you start dealing with solutions, those solutions have knock on environmental effects as well as other kinds of effects. Um, yeah, sorry, go on then. Yeah. And so I think, I think the education side of things is really important. And I, and I think, and I actually think a younger generation, I sense as much more education about it than we were, mm. but, I th but I think now people like me are getting into positions of making decisions, actually, we often don't have the theoretical base to go, I really know what I'm talking about. Well, it, yeah, it's know. like, uh, I mean, I would say from my, my working experience, I mean, like I was, I was a sort of like, I remember doing a school project on this when I was about 16 and like, you know, pre GCSE and just being like, oh, you know, this looks like not a good future. <laughs> and then you've, you know, getting into the nineties and stuff and sort of going into work and just seeing. You know, like from all of the decisions that were made through the nineties, it's just like, nobody's taking this seriously. Like nobody's going to do anything about this. And it's, you know, like through the workplace for most of my working life, I mean, you were lucky if you got any lip service about it of like, oh, we're doing some paper. Like the most you saw was like a recycling bin in the office and they'd put up a sign saying, oh, we're doing it. We're sponsoring a green thing, but it's never been a part of my 
Like, I mean, I've tried to make it, but it's never been a major part of my working experience. But that interesting, because that recycling thing is a good example of the message got across. Like the message was, particularly during that era, and it's why people like you and me will say it, is because that was the message recycle and that is that is something yeah. we can do yeah. and that we should be doing. Yeah. And I think that message to us, to our generation came across really clearly. Yeah. And so now it's a go-to for us, actually. It's like, yeah, what should we do? We should be recycling. Yeah. That's probably like, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know. It's like, it's not enough. We've proved that for 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. But that messaging made us, and we do recycle. Mm. You know, like we do separate stuff out. So that, mm. that so so that's why that got, that messaging of people who are producing the messaging and what governments need to do, like that's why governments need to get better at that messaging going. And policy wise, this is what we're doing here. The messaging is, yeah. um, but also then I guess, and I guess within different kinds of organizations, what, what messaging can they give to go? Actually, here's something we actually can do. Cause I think, I think it's quite difficult for people sometimes. I find it difficult to go, what the hell do we do about it? What do we really yeah. do about it? Yeah. You know, it seems so big and it yeah. seems so unmanageable and it, Probably, and, and one of the, one of the difficulties, it might actually be too late. Like it might actually just be like, we've, it's all messed up guys. Yep. <laughs> um, it's, you know, and that can be, that in terms of taking action is quite empowering. So I think that, that finding, yeah, again, as you know, hopefully quantum source is a part of this, finding those messages where you can go, where you can think about this area of the environment and, you know, because the environment isn't one thing as well. Cause I think we're talking about environment and the environment's not one thing. So how do we start to make it? manageable chunk so that we can start to do something and also go up, but and also push up to go and here's the structural change that's really needed to really make a difference in some of these bigger things so yeah it's it's a it's a hard one <laughs> mm, yeah big question yeah um so from big questions i'm going to go to smaller questions <laughs> but i suppose they're kind of related so i'm going to go down social media route um so i've got this question because it's more and more part of people's works like kind of across the board so do you have to like work through social media? Do you have to create your own social media? Like what's your relationship with it in terms of work? So I'll start with Adam again. Uh, yeah, uh, social media, definitely a big part of communicating university research and also uh, trying to advertise uh, university courses and recruit students. I think the university is very aware that um, a lot of its target market is uh, very active on social media. And so there are University of Leeds, Twitter, Instagram accounts, and probably whatever other ones the kids today use that I have no idea about. Yeah. And so I do have my own social media feeds. Um, I do, well, I do promote quantum source through, but I also have my own personal account at which I'm, you know, announcing things about, you know, research discoveries, things like that. I do think that it's a valuable tool. I think that, yeah, there are, there are the downsides to it. Um, I think that announcing a big say, you know, climate results over, over social media, uh, you do make yourself vulnerable to the, to the trolls and the kind of the bot accounts or something like that. But, uh, no, it, it, it is a big part. And I think it's one that, um, I, I do value. Mm. So Dick, um, I would imagine that you had to do a fair bit of social media. Yeah, we do. We have accounts for the news and all that. I think we're quite, I think we, we do all right. We do all right. Yeah. Like you really see, you can track ticket sales to putting stuff on social media. Like it's that, like, you know, it's in a sense we're there to let people know we're there. So it's, it's a way of attracting people to, 
buy tickets and come to our stuff, really. Um, do you lead on that then? Like, do you work in that area or have you just outsourced it or have you employed someone to do it? No, no, we, we, all, do, we all just do it. So yeah. all, all our social accounts are open between, uh, so me and Chop do a lot of it. Um, Beth also, who's our bar manager, gets on it. Like, we're not, we're, we're kind of, we're not terribly planned in it in lots of ways so we're not mm. we don't do that corporate thing of going you've got to send each tweet through 20 layers of bureaucracy to see if it's okay mm. uh, we just whack it on there and um there's certain times of the day it works better we do know stuff like that so mm. um but uh, yeah i mean i think we the difficulty for venues using social media is because primarily everyone always goes don't just go on and sell things to people. Go on and have chit chat. A lot of the time, what we've got to say is, "Oh, there's this show on. Do you want to? Do you want to come?" Uh, so, so it's quite difficult sometimes to get out of that. And the stuff that does get the most traction is just silly pictures of the three of us messing around. And it's like, oh, "What's this done well?" <laughs> come on, to get. You look but, like uh, having fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess it as well. Like I get that. Actually, people are engaging with. The fact that it's a fun thing and that we're inviting people to have a fun time and come out and do something fun. So, and it reflects what that is, I think. So that, that, you know, I mean, I get it. So yeah, yeah. so we, 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 we're, we're all at the socials. Definitely. Um, we, we, we're lucky enough to have a, so our, we've got a, a designer who does all our work, who's just knocks stuff out yeah. with alarming regularity and it's always brilliant <laughs> and it just, and it gives, hopefully gives an identity to the social media stuff we do as well. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, with the theatre background, does that kind of lend towards being more creative and having more ideas for content? Or Oh, you'd think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think the theatre as a sector is really bad at social media. Yeah. There's some people within it who are really good, but actually I think it's a funny old traditional industry in lots of ways. It's been done the same for years. And it's rubbish a lot of the time. <laughs> I think that's a really good point, actually. You know, like... Um, yeah, you should be seeing loads more stuff from the theatres on yeah. on social media. You know, like they they've got actual performances and actual dramatic yeah. things happening. It's yeah. like put a bit of it online. Yeah, yeah. and also I like I think I think the things that people who are in an industry often, the things they think are in interesting, and not the things everyone else thinks are interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so people's always like, it's this person, like it's this choreographer doing this particular thing that no one's ever heard of and no one yeah, cares yeah. about. But yeah. so someone said to me once, I went to a thing and they were like, you know, look at how successful people advertise stuff. And it's by show people enjoying the product. Yeah. And it's like theatres never show people enjoying a bit of theatre or enjoying yeah. all their reaction. Is. And I was like, yeah, that's really obvious, isn't it? But it's... Sell the sizzle, not the steak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we're doing all right off it, I think. I think there's always, you know, if there's any social media experts who want to critique us, come and bring it on. <laughs> we'll have a look see what you think. <laughs> if you could change anything about your work, what are the three things that, like, top three things that you'd change? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's, I mean, there's never enough time. <laughs> um it's never time, I guess, because there's never enough. You'd, you'd, you'd have just you'd just have more resource, wouldn't you? So because you could do more with more resource, I guess. So you'd have more people to be doing this, that, and the other. Mm. Um, and of course, you'd have the money to pay for it, and it'd be all fine. <laughs> so, but yeah, but sometimes I think that that time thing is a, um, you know, 
but I, I think there's a there's something within live events that's very much it's the show must go on, isn't it? You've got a mm. you've got a very definite deadline, mm. and you'll get to that point whether you like it or not. <laughs> and that you know the, that's both incentivizing and part of the thrill of it, and part of what I think people enjoy who are in it. And also, you always just run out of time a bit. There's always more you could do, isn't there? To make things better. But um, that I would also, I mean, we also deal with the public. Honestly, sometimes <laughs> that's some, the, the parade of bizarre questions that you get asked and um, information you think you've given already um, and all of that. So, you know, <laughs> I changed the public and they're funny questions. Most of them. Our customers are <laughs> That's absolutely what I'll say. <laughs> you said you did a, a fair bit of touring. Yeah. Like, what are some of the what are some of the highlights of that? Like, what was what would you say is the best places or place you've you've kind of played? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know what? For me, it's about it's always about that moment in a room where people and it and it can be like. Is it, you know, here's the big, most important venue you've been to, or is it that funny little place in the back of beyond where suddenly everyone came out and was like, and you yeah, got a real little local community who suddenly yeah. enjoyed your show. And both of those things are really rewarding. You know, yeah. I, you know, it's, um, for me, the, the liveness of it is what's interesting. It's that thing of you, you create a space where people can be in a room together and, uh, there's a, a communal response to things and I think the audience then has a real part to play in what the show is that evening so yes you've got your act so yes you've got the people who've rehearsed it and have prepared for it you've got your actors your performers whoever it is and they're you know creating the magic whatever but actually it is about people in a room and, and an audience can change a show yeah. from night to night and, and make it totally different according to who they are and what they bring to it and what their reaction is. And yeah. that the communal thing that happens magically between people. Yeah. Well, what's what that like and what's been on the news and yeah. 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 Definitely. Like I remember there was a, I went to a show, um, um, uh, during uh, the Blair era and it was, it was when all the war kicked off and it there was big protests. And you could hear it from outside the theatre. And this show, honestly, I've never wanted to be in a, anywhere less. I said, I had tickets to this show, and I was like, I was going, and suddenly there's all this massive events are kicking off, mm. and you're like, this feels so irrelevant. This feels like yeah. we're in the wrong place. Yeah, I'm on the, I'm in the wrong place in history. I need to go out there. <laughs> that's where there. the real theatre. That's where, yeah, that, yeah, that's really? where the action's happening. And suddenly, <laughs> but then other other days, it can suddenly be absolutely electric, can't it? And suddenly you're like, wow, this bit you're people are you know and it's actually what i've enjoyed about interestingly getting into doing the kind i program all the comedy here almost the most political thing i think we've done has been the comedy in lots of ways because you could it's a real it's a funny outfit it's a gentle farsi is an area where we always gentrifying and it there's there's um you know that houses are going up blah, blah, blah. and it's probably helped by having a couple of venues down the road and it doesn't mm. not contribute oh yeah yeah um but it's traditionally quite a white working class area and there's still, you know, there's people who have been here years and it's, so it's, it's quite, a, it's not a divided area, I think, but there's, mm. there's old Farsley and new Farsley is what I'd say. Yeah. And both of them will come to the comedy. Yeah. It's great. Um, and I love sometimes the free son of you get a Brexit joke and it'll split the room. Yeah. Now that, that is, and that's, that's amazing. That's electric yeah. because suddenly we're, here we are 
we're a community, we're enjoying laughing together. And suddenly everyone's going, oh, there are differences. Mm. Not a safe way exactly, but a, a way that goes, we've also got common ground is what I'm saying. So yeah. we laugh together, we come and enjoy something together. And then we have a moment of going, oh, there's still differences between us. And, and that for me gives, doesn't give the answer to those things, but it gives common ground to suddenly address the fact that we know, suddenly we know people think differently to us. And that in yeah. itself, I think is funny. The regular comedy that has three comics on, and they're not allowed to be three straight white guys. That's, that's mm. the basic rule that we have. Because that, and apart from just really dull, for me, is that there's a thing about representation and, and that, like people need to be able to see different kinds of people on stage and that, yeah. that is something we can do in yeah. that context. And you, but you can still, I know there's, there's comments that have been made to me that are you know, racist, basically, but in response, but, uh, but you can see people um, being challenged about things and actually mm. going, I'm happy to confront uh, how I feel about a, someone who's different to me having having a voice on stage. And mm. I thought that has been a really fascinating process, I think. So, Adam, I'm going to do sort of final question, but we might do, like, I'll do a chance to discuss whatever. Yeah, so my final question is, if you could change any three things about your work, like today, tomorrow, what three things would you pick? I think the first thing I would change is that the university sector becomes fairer. Mm. Uh, that I, mean, I mentioned it earlier that uh, the the items that are that are on the agenda for for UCU strike campaigns, mm. um, I would get those sorted. So you would remove gender pay gaps. You would improve the inclusivity in the sector. You would remove the the reliance on the on the precarious contracts. Uh, you would normalise the the pay across the sector. I mean. You got vice chancellors who are earning a lot, and I appreciate that they're at the head of a, a very large um, internationally facing organisation. Mm. Um, but um, the disparity between the uh, the best paid and the the poorest paid in the university is really quite big, and that that has has all sorts of damaging consequences because it's it's often um, female researchers, certainly young researchers, who are um, most badly affected by that. So that's probably the, the most immediate. Thing I would change in the university. Um, next, I think I would try to change how how university academics value their own contribution to the university because we all get into the mindset, and I think we're almost preconditioned to the mindset that you are your research and you are your university presence, mm. and um, it's very it, it's very easy for that to spiral out of control, and so the work life balance tends to fall very much in favour of the work. And so I suppose I, I'm, I, I have been guilty of this. And it was really when um, my girlfriend moved up to Leeds that I really stopped just getting home in the evening and again, flipping open the laptop and carrying on work. Yeah. There has to be a, a better, a better division. Um, and I think, you know, part and parcel with that is that the university changes its work culture, which is very much kind of. Uh, related to the first point that I made, but it also needs the academics to realise that they're you, you weren't you weren't born to work, and the research that you do and the teaching that you do is work. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's not your life. You, you do have the, your relatives, your loved ones, the rest of your life out there. Um, so you know, you've got to make time for them. The third one I would change. I would like to really start to have a meaningful way of challenging people who think that university academics have some sort of agenda. 
Mm. Um, so that there is greater public trust in those kind of at the coal face of the, of the, the scientific, the societal, the humanities research to realize that actually we're, <laughs> we're just people who are interested in something. We're not necessarily trained in kind of black ops or something like this, you know, conspiracy theory generation and stuff like that. Um, the, the things that you can see university staff getting accused of, we, we wouldn't have the first idea how to start that if we wanted to, you know? So, um, I, I would like to really get in, get to the bottom of where this, this lack of trust in science and scientists comes from. Um, and I think that, you know, <laughs> maybe that means that something like quantum source then wouldn't need to exist, but until we get there, um, I think quantum source is its own little contribution to, to try and um, improve that relationship. Do you do do you do any humanity stuff then in the quantum source stuff? Or yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we don't draw the line at science. We are sort of research. So um, it, it's it's anyone who works in the university, be they uh, a postdoctoral researcher in the humanities to a professor of sciences in a science department. Uh, so yeah, it's a, a mixed bag across the board. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say that we're, we're probably running as a 50, 50 split between, uh, between humanities content and science content. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I actually think that the, the humanities is, is, it is essential to engage with because if you, if you want to inform policy, if you want to have that, uh, reach into the public sector, mm. uh, then you do need to communicate your, your science, uh, in a way that I think that scientists in inverted commas in general, um, are not good at doing, and they can improve that by talking to those who work in the humanities mm. or advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Journalism or yeah. yeah. But then, uh, and then all of a sudden, the, the, maybe that's the, that, that's where these conspiracies come from then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but I think it's like, you know, it's, it's learning those skill sets, isn't it? It's like, you know learning the communication skills, learning the customer service skills, learning the, you know, like, and with every role or with every project, you, you kind of, they each come with their own particular skill set that you need to do it. And we don't yeah, always have those skill sets. Yeah. And that's why, that, that's why universities can be really amazing institutes that, you know, with the, the kind of multidisciplinary teams that they can bring together and, and not just multidisciplinary, but multi-personality. You've got people who are um, much more confident with the public engagement, but then you've got the people who are, you know, really kind of handling the equations in the background, if you like, and, and it takes all sorts. And if you're going to actually do a scientific project, you need to have people with skills in a big range of fields. Okay. Hmm. Hey, I mean, I probably could go on and could keep going with lots of different questions about different things, but I'm going to wind it up. So rather than leaving the audience wanting more, I'll leave me wanting more. So, uh, yeah. So Dick, do you want to go through kind of like, uh, the socials, where can people find out about Sunnybank Mills and, um, about the constitution and obviously quantum source? I was thinking that the, the, the social media, for the accounts for, uh, quantum source, Adam does, and he's really good at them, but absolutely. I'll let him talk to you about them, but we have, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, or uh, both the constitutional and the old one. Uh, so the Twitter for the constitutional is at F constitutional mm -hmm. and it's at old woman for the, the old woman, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then it's similar for all the others. So I think, I think, uh, I, I think um, 
Okay, yeah. I should have prepared this, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes <laughs> I anyway. I put my phone on and they just come up. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> They're all, uh, so the constitutional files, yeah. Um, uh, and the old one and yeah, find us on all them and, and come follow us. <laughs> cool. Adam, if you do the quantum source, give us all the information about that. Um, okay. So yeah, the, the university of Leeds accounts are very easy to find on, on Instagram and Twitter and they're both there and both active. Um, if you want to dig down a little deeper, um, into some of the, um, the kind of the, the, the geoscience futures I was talking about, then, um, do look for Geo Solutions Leads at uh, Twitter, which is uh, you know um, really the kind of the inside story of what's happening with happening within the energy transition. Mm. I myself um, on Twitter as at geophysics underscore Adam, and uh, Quantum Source is uh, Quantum underscore Source on both Twitter and Instagram. So uh, come along, find out about it, and maybe even see if one of our live events. How much does the night cost? Is there a cover charge? What's the deal when people get down there? So um, 200 quid, we're just making it really accessible. It's uh, <laughs> but it's 200 quid's worth of really awesome content. <laughs> it's not actually 200 quid. <laughs> um, it, it's five pound and for that you'll get um, to have very close contact with three university researchers who will tell you what they do over the course of a half hour. Mm. And um, I think you... You guys run a, an Eventbrite account, but uh, you can find all the ticket sales through the Constitutional's website. Mm -hmm. It's theconstitutional.co.uk. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I'm just going to give you guys a quick chance to like, is there anything you want to say, anything that you want to cover before I kind of wind it up? And uh, feel like we've missed anything or anything? Yes, we could um, you know, just say something about forthcoming quantum source nights so um, i don't know when you're planning on having this come out obviously we'll if it's going to come out after the a certain date then uh, yeah. i'll try and get it out as quickly as i can but i've got quite i've, I've got a backlog and i'm i'm wading through them so <laughs> all right well i'll just as say as i can i'll say something then so um we have quantum source events going on through the spring so there is one at, towards the end of february towards the end of march and towards the end of april and um our February night is uh, putting the ology in Hollywood uh, because it's uh, science at the movies. Um, we have a springtime source uh, just after the spring equinox. And um, in April, it's our Love Your Planet Day, which uh, celebrates birthday 2022. So uh, there'll be a big mixed bag of research talks there. So yeah, come along. And uh, Dick? Uh, yeah. Check out all our stuff. This is, thank you for having us along. Um, <laughs> great it's been really good to talk it's quite it's quite interesting like and something that i think quantum source does is as you kind of said earlier bring together that kind of science and arts thing i think so often yeah. these things are seen as separate and somehow even as a person you are you're one or the other yeah um, and i don't think that's true actually like yeah. you can be interested in more than one thing um yeah. i would suggest um so i think it's it's really nice to bridge that gap a bit and show that you know it's not I mean, there's there's a strong link between science and art as well. You know, like the the I mean, cinema is a prime example. Video games, you know, like or modern music production, like all of these things had to be invented so that we, you know, that the art could go up the next level. Oh, it's driven by technology. Like I'm a big believer in that. It's the technology that changes the form of what we think of as art. That you know, it's not we're not all sitting around campfires anymore. It's 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 even within theatre, which is. You know, in some ways it's, it's, you know, someone on stage saying stuff, but 
you know, how are they lit? What's the sound going on around them? What are the technologies to get people there? The experiences they're having as an audience, you know, for me, art is driven by technology as much as anything else. Mm. So, yeah. Cool. Um, right. Well, I'm going to stop the recording there. I will say thank you on the recording because I don't often do that. So, um, <laughs> so thank you guys for both coming on. No problem. Um, thank you. Okay, so, and I won't do the end meeting thing like I've done before, because I am going to talk to you after. <laughs> Not end meeting, Simon. Stop video, stop recording. Here we go. Thank you again to Dick and Adam for being my guests. Uh, thanks again to all my guests, and thanks to you for listening to this. Please follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads to find out when episodes are being released. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash simon hyphen treen that's t-r-e-e-n or you can go to the company page which is linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios if you want to make a podcast in lees whether it's for a cause a publicity campaign a product promotion or your own passion projects then get in touch with western studios for support advice and guidance on anything podcasts at Western Studios, you can work with a real lawyer, me, who is actually in Leeds, that you can actually work with on making podcast content. So don't wade through articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts. Just get in touch with someone and make a podcast. Western Studios can make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios can take your podcast admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast, but you don't know where to go from there? Hit me up at make my podcast at western-studios.com and let's start making your podcast right now save the hassle save the headache and make your podcast with a leads-based in real life podcast producer at western studios leads if you're listening to this i assume you have some connection to leads like living here or being from here if you're such a person in leads or from leads and you haven't done a recording for working hours yet then email me now and let's arrange some time to record your working hours episode. This is your show, Leeds. It's all about what you want to make of yourself. If you want to be on working hours, we will need a two-hour window in which to record. I can record in your work time or during your downtime. I have been recording interviews over Zoom for over a year, but I can record offline too. You can appear on working hours anonymously, or you can promote yourself and or your company or brand. Email workinghourspod at western-studios.com if you want to be a guest. Add a short bio and some suggestions of your availability to your email, or just send me your feedback, questions, comments, and queries about working hours. I'm really interested to hear from anyone in Leeds or from Leeds in whatever industry, sector, or role you are in. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Please remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to this show. Please rate and review Working Hours and I'll see you next time, our kid. Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. <laughs>